You're listening to the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Show, a podcast to inspire physicians in the process of immigration to the United States and access to graduate medical education. We create meaningful and helpful content that motivates medical students and doctors throughout the world with the goal of creating a community that supports itself and gives feedback to each other, that stays updated with the most recent tips and advice on how to make it in America and become a successful resident or fellow in the speciality of your dreams. Dr. Alonso Osorio is board certified and residency trained in both emergency and family medicine and will be bringing you 20 years of his personal experiences, struggles and motivation. We'll be chatting with people like you to talk about the lessons they've learned along their personal path, how to make an impact and how we can all benefit from it. Also, we'll analyze the current resources available and how to benefit from them. Thanks for joining us. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to episode number 12 of the Foreign and International Medical Graduate Podcast. Today, I'm extremely excited and extremely motivated to be here because of the fact that I currently work with Dr. Juan Martin Valdivia Valdivia, who is a neurosurgeon in the current healthcare system where I personally work and obviously on daily basis we're interacting in one way or the other regarding uh, patients of mine or his private patients and I'm super thrilled because I don't think we have had a neurosurgeon yet uh, invited to the show and the reason why I wanted to bring a brain surgeon is because this is extremely motivational for many reasons. First of all becoming a brain surgery, a neurosurgeon, and a spine surgeon in the United States is one of the most if not the most competitive, actually it is the most competitive specialty in the National Residency Matching Program and throughout the U.S. and it's extremely selective and you have to meet remarkable amount of uh, personal accomplishments and criteria, hard work and dedication. I can tell you I rotated only for about a month on my third year as a neurosurgical intern and it's been one of the toughest rotations that I ever done and People like Dr. Valdivia do it for 9, 10, 12 years, and they never give up. So Dr. Juan Martin Valdivia Valdivia is from Peru. He's Latin American like me. I'm Colombian. And that also gives me a little bit of goosebumps knowing that uh, he's a motivation for many of us to be able to be successful here in the United States. So... Dr. Valdivia is currently working for the Baker Medical Group. He's one of the attending physicians for the neurosurgical team for our facility. And we work in a pretty busy, significant uh, trauma center with about a quarter of a million of patients that come through our doors uh, with acute neurological and non-neurological emergent conditions. So, Dr. Valdivia, thank you for being on the show. I'm extremely excited. I'm sorry for the lengthy introduction, but I'm just completely thrilled having you here today. And thank you for inviting me into your beautiful office. And uh, thank you for having me here. Thank you. It's an honor, a pleasure to speak with you. I'll be happy to answer all your questions. Awesome. Dr. Valdivia, since um, there is no one better to introduce themselves, do you mind uh, telling us a little bit about uh, what has been your career this far? Of course. So I was born in Lima, Peru. My dad was in the intelligence police force. My mom uh, was in uh, marketing for for a couple decades, actually. Uh, I did high school there, primary school, and I did med school there as well. During med school, I, uh, I was a, a volunteer uh, fireman, actually, on my free time. 
and uh, after that I became sort of uh, enchanted with uh, the idea of doing surgery because this was a real challenge to use not only your science skills but your hands and I kind of worked like working with my hands at the time mm -hmm. so I saw it as a challenge and that's how I became uh, sort of enamored with the idea of doing neurosurgery and actually believe it or not being in the fire department which by the way was one of the best jobs I've ever had Actually, that seeing patients with brain trauma and spine trauma really, really sparked the love for, for neurosurgery back then when I was 17, 18 years old. Wow. So just that early exposure earlier on not only motivated you to do things with your hands, but also to specifically potentially dedicate yourself to take care of something related with the brain or the spine. Yeah, uh, being a volunteer fireman in Peru, it's it's fun because where I lived, at least, it was more, it's a social thing, but it teaches you how to be a, a team player. It teaches you how to be a leader sometimes, leading teams into fires or rescues or car crashes or whatever incident happens. It teaches you to be obedient, but also to be disciplined. But it also teaches you to uh, to handle stress. And sometimes you don't learn it in med school. You know, you don't learn it in med school. So I think that prepared me to be a resident. Uh, yeah, right from the door, I, I was able to take call and sleep little and, and be at the top of my game next morning. It is incredible, those long shifts that you do. And despite the current residency restrictions, I think the neurosurgeons to accomplish the level of expertise and have the amount of cases under their belt they cannot really have a 30 you know, hour type of shift. It has to be much longer than that. And I personally witnessed that. So you went to medical school at Universidad Peruana, Cayetano Heredia, mm -hmm. private university and highly competitive to get into in Lima, Peru. How old were you when you went to start medical school in 1994? I was 16. I was 16 years old and as a whole day exam where you compete with the other applicants from all over all over the country and i believe there was at the time a decimal point of 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 uh, ranking where it doesn't matter if you get a great uh a great score if you are not within the first i believe it was 164 decimal spots you're not in and if i believe if you take the test to get into med school twice two years in a row and you don't get in, you have to wait one year off to apply again. Once you're in med school, if you fail, uh, you take, a th I believe you, we took two or three topics a year, and if you fail one of them, you have to repeat the whole year doing just that topic, and if you fail again, you're out. Wow. It was quite a thing when I was like 18, 19, it was just an, uh, studying anatomy and dissecting cadavers, and it was a real thing. And we used in South America, as you may know, the French, style for anatomy you know it's yeah, not like the, right. it's not that the anglo-saxon uh, way to study anatomy so you have to study anatomy knowing proper names for everything there's not descriptive names there's proper names of whoever invented or discovered whatever anatomical structures it was fun and uh you know back then is the 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 smartest you were or the the more you can diagnose without the smaller amount of tests, yep. you were quote unquote cool on med yeah. school. And the cooler attendants were the ones that could diagnose 
a patient with just touching the patient, smelling the patient, and clinical doing the medicine. physical. Yeah, clinical medicine. Yeah, clinical that's, medicine. So that's the way I was taught, and I yeah. think that's the way Latin American medicine is. Yeah. Minimally invasive on testing, uh, any type of testing, and re completely reliant on clinical medicine. And to be honest with you, I now looking back, I don't know how I did that for so long hmm. because to this day, I'm surprised of the amount of pathology that sometimes I find in somebody with non-specific acute abdominal pain, for example, hmm. uh, and just found pathology just by doing further imaging. Yeah. So yeah. you made it to medical school when you were 16. Yes. And for us, medical school is somewhere in between six and seven years, right? With a rural service at the very end. In Peru, it was, at the time, was eight years long. And the last two years are clinical years. The last year is called the internship. And the one before that is called the externship. Okay. And in those two years, separately, you do rotations on the big rotations. OBGYN, surgery, medicine, pediatrics, and an, an elective one. And I used my elective time, those two months, to rotate in the States in neurosurgery. Wow. Yeah. Were you proficient already in English by the time you came to rotate in the U.S.? In not great. Not great, no. In fact, when I rotated in the U.S., the chief resident in neurosurgery told me that I should probably learn a little more English outside medical English because that's all I knew. Medical English, I read all my books in, in English, you know. Was there <laughs> anyone in the family that was a doctor that potentially motivated you? I know that off the mic specifically, and unfortunately, your dad died very early during your life. At the you know, and you, since the age of ten, um, unfortunately, your daddy was not present, and you were pretty much by your mom. But I wonder if there was like a specific person that motivated you to proceed and go into medical school. Uh, that would be talking early 1990s. No, there was nobody in my family that really told me, that guided me and told me to go into med school. You know, I lost my dad when I was 10, so I didn't have a father figure to look up to or to go with my problems. That could have gone wrong or that could have gone good. I believe it's a handicap to, to a certain degree, but in, you can use that handicap to your advantage because, because you can make, if you don't have anybody to tell you what to do, sometimes you can make your life the way you want it, and you can sort of have fun discovering it. Uh, not having anyone to tell me what to do in medicine allowed me to discover medicine by myself. So I never entered med school knowing I was going to be a neurosurgeon. I wanted to be an ID doctor. Then I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Then I wanted to be a chemist. Then I wanted to be this and that. And then I discovered a neurosurgery after going through all that, through the seven, first seven years, that uh, neurosurgery was for me. So, uh, no, I didn't have anybody, you know, anybody to look up to. Uh, not until later in, in med school where I discovered a true mentor. When we graduate from medical school, we go into medical school in the age of 16. We graduate probably by the age of 21, 22, correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, to the eyes of the standard American residency program or doctors in America, we're an extremely young physician. True. Uh, because most Americans, you know, they're in their 30s and barely graduating from medical school or late 20s. And by the time they're done with their trainings, they're probably into the mid-late 30s, if not even more. So having come so early into the U.S., how was that experience being a still a young man? Probably you came by yourself. How was that process of immigration, acculturization? 
Yeah. Well, that's a change. Where I grew up in Lima, it's a pretty cosmopolitan city. It's a big city. Uh, over, I don't know, I think by now it's over 14 million people or so. So I went to Chicago. The first, My first stop is in Chicago. was uh, approved to do a preliminary surgery spot in Chicago, USC. And yeah, I was by myself. Uh, but you have to leave. I left everything. I left my, my mom, my friends, my family, my girlfriend at the time because I had this opportunity. And you just had two bags and you show up and then you do your job, you know. It was a, definitely a change. Yeah, I would say it was a big change. And there is also a significant financial and economical investment on this. Would you say that uh, were you financially solvent to be able to grow through the process of taking the USMLE and the CSA uh, on, right. were you able to do that with personal uh, funding or your family really help you through it? Well, uh, I think my mom, I have to credit my mom for helping me quite a bit then. Uh, and even when I knew she meant really well and I could cost, you know, cover uh, costs for me, I was always very conscious and mindful to try to avoid costs, extra costs if, if, if at all possible. So I, I would do the best to, I don't know, stay with some extra family in Chicago or stay with friends or, or minimize the amount of books I'll have to buy. So, yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult. Unfortunately, you do have to put some investment into that. If you're really sure you can, you can do it, you have to do that. You know, there's no way around, uh, other way around. How is the process of taking a step one, a step two, CS? Yeah, that's how it's funny. You know, it's, when I was in med school in Peru, uh, you don't know better. And there's, there's no internet back then. And there's no nothing. There's no social media. You don't know no, anything. And um, I happened to go to a fire station one day because I lived next to a fire station. I see uh, a guy who graduated from University of Guadalajara, a Peruvian guy. And I say, what are you studying? And he's like, he told me I'm studying for step two. Ah, what do you take a course with? tell me about it so he told me about steps one two three and that's how i got to take step one because i met this guy at the fire station not even in med school not even at the med school i don't have anybody in med school to tell me about step one or umsmle nothing not even my teachers i met some guy who graduated in mexico and this guy was nice enough to show me his books and tell, oh, you want to take a photocopy? Take for them. At that time, you take photocopies. Yeah. So I took some photocopies and I got interested. And that's how I took my, took my USMLE Step 1. I took my USMLE Step 1 when I was in my externship, pediatric rotation. So they're very, uh, they're very demanding on your hours. So I took one morning off to take my USMLE, got back, and I started rounding and taking call in the hospital. And I got 94 percentile. I was wow. pretty good. I was pretty good. First attempt. First, first attempt and only attempt. Thank God. And uh, I said, okay, good. Then I can possibly, you know, apply for a surgical there, perhaps a surgical specialty, which I like surgery. But by, yeah. by then you knew that you had to have high percentile scores on the USMLE. By then I knew, yeah, I knew that I, the, the better I could do, the better, the better for me, for my choices. So... It's funny how I, I, yeah, I, I used to study at night after call or after, you know, whatever hospital 
Scott work and uh, and I got a 94 percentile was pretty good how many months do you did it take you to study for step one? Oh, I studied for probably eight months straight okay I studied hours and hours and hours and I will go through my whole material once which took me probably two months then I'll do the whole material again in one month do the whole material again in three weeks then in two weeks then in one week I mean I don't know I, I got it to a science where I I use a marker and every time I'll flip a page, I knew I just saw three words and the whole chapter will come to my mind because you just be religious about it. And doing the QBank, for example, I'll do 50 questions a day, 100 questions a day sometimes. Even if I knew the answer, I'll still go over and over and I'll repeat the questions that I got wrong initially because the ones you get wrong, you never forget those. If you get one right, fine, you may forget about it. But if you get a question wrong, you won't forget that one because it's imprinted in your mind. So that's that's how I did it. How do you how do you think your personality and the sense of extreme discipline or what is the kind of mindset that an applicant has to have when getting ready to take on the steps? It's gonna be this one of hard work, putting the hours. You think that's uh, something that could be repeatable out there? Something that people should probably consider to I do? I think people that want to take the steps, being foreign medical graduates, should con concentrate on... I, I, there's Somebody told me once, a long, something once, a long time ago, when I was about to enter med school, and they told me, you have to study for hours a day to be prepared for your test. And I'll say, why? Because I can just talk to my friends and get kind of an idea. If you sit down alone in a room and you study for five hours straight, nobody's going to steal those hours from you. Those are yours. That's your choice. All that material is in your mind. Nobody's going to steal that from you. So I took that too hard. And you have to just set a plan. If you have to sleep less, you still believe less. If you have to eat less, you eat less. I mean, if you have to put a, if you have a goal, you have to make it happen. And if you're young, I mean, what better age to do it? You know, what do you have to lose? Yes. You're just losing what? You just lose time and sleep, but that's that's okay. Yeah. I would say that one of the happiest days of my life was the birth of my firstborn child. And I would say that probably having had past step one probably became one of the happiest days of my life. How did you feel? What, what were the emotions that came to you when, when you got that amazing score? Well, I was super happy. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I don't, let me see, I, I was at home, I got it in the mail, and by then, I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do. So I opened the envelope, and I saw the 94%. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, I, didn't, I thought it was probably someone else's score. And then I saw my name, and I was very happy. I showed my mom, I called my aunt, you know, I was happy. I was, that was one step that told me I could really do something. Yeah. And the reason why I'm harping on and asking this is because I know that a step one has become a filter for foreign medical grads that are looking for competitive specialties. So yes. that was a huge, huge deal. Yeah. And then we moved on into step two. Yeah. And uh, how did you do on that one? I don't remember my score. I, I think I was 90, I think I was 92 percentile on step two. Uh, step three, I took it later on. Step two was not as difficult because it was more clinical. But I don't know, step one is a big filter. I was chief resident at the University of Arizona in neurosurgery, and then I was faculty at the University of Michigan. And basically for neurosurgery, the big filter is step one. There's one, there's, so you get a lot of applications on a desk. One 
big tower is whoever has more than I think 92 or 93 percentile one big tower is whoever has less than that and the ones basically I, I mean I don't know <laughs> I don't want to standardize or generalize the process but basically once you pass that filter whatever percentile it is per program I don't know once that filters pass then uh, you look at the rest publications involvement once you pass the multiple other filters recommendations publications are big then the interview the interview probably is like 50 percent of your acceptance in residency because i mean you can have 99th percentile on all your tests but if you cannot hold that interview then yeah, what's the you, point if you're a little non-personable uh, yeah yeah. dull person it's not gonna take you anywhere yeah yeah so uh but yeah you're you're right step one is a big deal so for you and i back in the days because you've been out of med school now 18 years i think back then the step two was a step two on its own and then you had an independent csa yes yes so back then was uh step one step two and then the csa or clinical skills assessment i used to call it csf because my english was not good then so i would get confused so I you passed. Were, you were already thinking on brain liquid. Yeah, I was reading too much neuro stuff. So I took that. Thank God I passed. And I took it in Philadelphia back then. Yes. There were only two spots in the country. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And the it headquarters was, for the ECFMG, a market street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, it was tough. And it was that's another big filter because they specifically actors pretend they're patients. And these actors had thick accents. I mean, I have an accent. Imagine the actor with a thick, I don't know, let's say a thick Southern accent. Yeah. You put that with a Chinese student. That's difficult. It was difficult for me. But you have to, I don't know, I don't know how, but you just have to pass the steps. And I remember there was a, oh, there was a case where you go to the room on the CSA, open the door, you're supposed to see a patient. I opened the door, there was a phone. <laughs> and there was a paper Say you have to call uh, your patient just received a history, a diagnosis of X cancer and you have to give the news. So I think if you grab the phone and you say you have cancer, you fail. You, fail. you have to grab the phone and counsel the patient to come to the office immediately to have a chat about the results. That was the, the, that was the, the good answer. And thank God I passed that one because I didn't know how to do it. Yeah, for yeah. for all of us, it's, it's, uh, the CSA, and specifically the way we interact with people in America, I would say it's a little different sometimes than the way we kind of interact. I would say that in Latin America, we're more like a fatherly type of medicine in which we're the doctors here. Mm. In America, it's more a conversational thing. There is respect, but the relationship is more at the same height. In, in Latin America, I think that patients just look up towards us and, mm. and it's a little dif different. True. So looking back, you had fantastic steps and you said that you had matched for a preliminary position in general surgery uh, in Chicago. Yes. Uh, University of Illinois in Chicago, correct? Mm. Yes. The preliminary position, you took it because you were applying to neurosurgery right away and you didn't match and you just say, I'm just going to take this prelim initially or how that process went for you? Back then, you could do one year of general surgery and then go into neurosurgery. Nowadays, it's preferred almost 100% times that you go into neurosurgery from the get-go, and then you do your internship within neurosurgery. 
But back then you could do that. So I applied preliminary surgery. That was one of the toughest years of my life, I think. Believe me, I mean, I, I think I didn't have a dad or a, or a family physician or a surgeon to teach me that I need to take a KUB whenever a patient has abdominal pain or something. I didn't know. I didn't know. In fact, I mean, I could, I could stitch, but my stitching was pretty bad. But I knew in my heart I could do it. I knew in my, my guts that there was nothing different between me and the other applicants. I had that down. Nobody had to tell me that. My mom probably was a big uh, proponent of me being, having self-confidence. So I knew that no matter if I didn't have a medical law, a family, physicians or anything, or I knew I could do it no matter what. Okay. So I went for it and I remember I would ask my other co-interns that were having more of a medical background. They were already on the ball. I mean, they knew how to evaluate a patient, what, te what test uh, is next and things like that. I would ask them. So you just kind of get all your resources in line and then you just uh, learn as you go and adapt. You know, the, the animal in the jungle that is the best one is not the strongest one, it's the one that can adapt. You're right. Right? So if you can adapt, you'll survive. So that year was more an adaptation type of process? Yeah, I had to learn, you know, my English had to get better, my, my knowledge had to get better, I had to get nimble. I mean, yeah, even in my rotations, I mean, I was sleeping the, in the office, I was sleeping on the floor because I wanted to be in the surgery. I wanted to be like with the, you know, where the action was. And if I was standing observing a surgery, and surgery was six hours, I would stay there for six hours plus, and I wanted them to see me there. And I remember the guy, the neurosurgeon back in, Chicago, he told me, now we know who really wants to be in this field because I was standing the whole time there watching, taking notes. You have no idea how much you can learn by taking notes. Yeah, and then you reflect on them. So yeah, my internship was there in Chicago and then I applied to neurosurgery. I had to uh, ask for time off, you know, for my attendings and my chief residents to go in interviews. I went to, as a foreign medical graduate, applying to neurosurgery, you don't get 20 interviews, you get five. So I went to a couple of them. I went to Michigan. I went to Michigan, um, Arizona, St. Louis, Missouri. I went to Rochester, New York. And I don't remember what. Uh, oh, Jackson, Mississippi. So, um, you know, it, it's all or none. It's like almost going against the universe, you know, because when I was in med school, I had nobody to tell me that I could do neurosurgery. No, everybody told me I was not going to do neurosurgery. Yesterday offline, you were telling me that, that yeah. all your attendants were like they did to me. I said, why are you going to the U.S.? It's a waste yeah, of your time. Yeah, yeah. And you said that if you left Peru, they told you yeah. never come back. Yeah. If you don't mind me. Yeah. That's just, yeah. So, yeah, I'm not going to say names, but I mean, I had multiple people tell me that I would never make it into neurosurgery. My fellow students, my, stu my fellow students that were years above me my interns when I was a student, and at least a couple of my teachers in neurosurgery, not in medicine, just in neurosurgery, people that were teaching me in the classroom, they told me I'll never make it, don't even to worry about it. It was almost like looking down on a, like, a, I don't know, somebody with no, no chances in life. Like, like a limitation. You, yeah, like, like you're handicapped, poor child, don't even, don't even worry about it. But since I never had nobody to tell me what to do since I was 10 years old, I said, you know what, I'm gonna go with my gut. So I just went for it. So I interviewed that year and, and I, I had a J1 visa then. So if you don't advance on a J1, you're home, you're gone, you're going back home. So 
I got the match, I interviewed, I submitted my list. I redid my list like 10 times because you have to you have to be smart at putting your list, who you put first, who you put second. If you put the toughest program first, you may not match at all and that's it. And if you put your, you know, your least attractive program first and you may not be happy. So you have to play your cards real well. And uh, I remember my, yeah, even people in Chicago, some people told me it was really difficult. It's funny, you know, in Peru, they'll tell me I would never make it. But in the States, they'll tell me you, you have a chance, maybe, you know. It is difficult, but you have a chance. My program director at the time is a, is a guy that I'm never going to forget. Very smart guy very talented and he he was very kind to offer me a categorical position in the same program uh, and uh, you know there were probably i knew there were probably 20 other guys outside the u.s were waiting for me to say no because it's true mm-hmm. you know when there's a match and there's open spots after the match and match mm-hmm. they're scrambling to call the programs and say can i send you my cb I'll go and you can, you know, so it happens. Please look at it. Please consider me. So, yeah. So, they asked me to sign that. And, and I, you know, I did a, a lot of self-reflection. And the match was on a Friday morning. And I told them, please, you know, trust me. Uh, I need this chance. So, I cannot sign it. I'm sorry. So, I said no to a very nice chance, running all the risks to go back home to Peru with nothing. And it was like, in, in four days, it was the match. I was like hoping to God. And you know, I was I was just doing a self-reflection and I told, I don't know if, you don't have to be a believer, but I believe in God. Whoever yes, you want to call God, I creator, do. you know. So I said, you know, if, if it's your will for me to be a neurosurgeon, then I will be a neurosurgeon. If it's not your will, then that's it. I'll go back home, you know. So, uh, I'm yes, sorry. Yesterday when we were speaking offline, um, I got goosebumps when you you actually tell your program director that has just given you an extremely competitive position, which is a categorical position to become a surgeon, which is a big deal. Right. So that's not a bad one to settle for. But no, you said no, no. you it's like going to the casino. You said what you were you, you felt that you were going to be able to make it. Yeah. And you took your chances. And you told him politely, sir, unfortunately, I cannot commit to this position because if you do, you know, you cannot withdraw yourself or, or pull back, right? So yeah, yeah. That's, it that is was... Friday afternoon or the day before Friday, you said? Or it was Friday? Yeah, so I, I, uh, there was Friday morning, the match results. And I took call Thursday night at Mercy Hospital in Chicago, okay? And I knew that I something told me that next day, so today's Thursday. Next day, Friday, was going to be a sad day because I knew my chances were really like no, very, very small. But I had faith. And next morning, I was rounding. My chief resident said, when is the match for neurosurgery? And I said, today. And he kind of patted me in the back and said, you know what? Just go home. Just go home and relax. Just take it easy today. We'll see you tomorrow. The next day, Saturday, all the residents and the faculty had to get together to take a, like a surgery test, like a, a yearly test. The in-service exam. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And I went home. I see my, my blinking light on the answering machine. This, this is University of Arizona. Please call us back about your application. And I, I thought to myself, maybe I messed it up or missed. Jeez. I call back and, uh, and they say, oh, you matched. Oh, my God. I, I cannot believe it. I, cannot. I hadn't slept for 20 hours. And I didn't sleep for 20 more hours of how excited I was. I was tired of call, not sleeping for 20 hours. I got the news. I didn't sleep for 20 more hours because I was so excited, you know, and 
And uh, the first thing is like Dr. Wynan, who is the program director, was the program director then. Uh, he's like, he's Dr. Wynan wants to talk to you. He's like, hey, Juan, congratulations, you're a neurosurgeon, you're gonna train with us. So, man, that was the best thing I ever heard. Probably the happiest day of your life? Yeah, one of the happiest day of my life. What about for your mom when you told her? That oh, she was very happy. She was very happy. Yeah, she was very, very happy. And I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I, first thing I, I did was call my mom. Uh, I called my program director. He was very proud of me. I called my mentor in Miami, Aldo Berti. It's like a dad to me. Yeah. And uh, and I knew that with dedication and, and, and self-confidence and believing in your own goals, you could do it, you know. And I did it purely for the love of treating patients. I mean, because... If you start this journey by thinking, I'm going to make money, you're going to be miserable because you're going to be waiting 14 years to make any money. You have to do this journey because you love treating patients. And I loved it. I just took the liberty to choose how, just be, by being in neurosurgery. And when I matched, I, I was so happy. I, I just said, uh, yeah, I, I thank God. I was very grateful. And I called my mentor. I told him, he said, no, man, it's, uh, I knew it and you deserve it. So. This might strike a core, a sentimental fiber in your heart. Yeah. Do you ever look up on the sky and think about your dad and tell him, hey, daddy, I did this for you? Or Yeah, of course. Of course, my dad's pictures right here. Yeah. Um, I, I, is he here? Yeah, right there. Here? Yeah, right here. So, right yeah, here. yeah, right there, right there. So, so yeah, yeah, I, I always kept my dad with me, and I knew that he was next to me. And, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think... Uh, I think he's very proud. He wanted me to be a doctor, so um, yeah. yeah, I think I, yeah, I, I do that. Yeah, I do that. So passion, motivation, yeah. okay, you know, you, and, and a little bit of help of God, and who knows? Probably he was looking after you from heaven up above, and well, uh, but you know, I think the message of the story is not you can make it in the U.S. quote unquote, and you can be this because you can invest some money and get this and get the letters and get the grades and get, yeah. But you have to do it out of love. You have to believe in yourself. For me, the message that all this journey gave me, it's a mental change. Because for when I left Peru and I was in Peru and everybody told me, you're never going to make it. You're ne Forget it. It's a waste of your time. People would laugh at me. I got a guy, an intern, laugh at me on my face saying, you ne what? You're never going to make it. But there was one guy, the only guy in the world who told me I could make it. And he was like almost like using a magic wand. It's like when you cure somebody, like a, like curing epilepsy, you give a medication that it stops. I, I had this feeling like it was so difficult and I have so little chances. I will never make it. So one day I met this guy in Miami after doing my rotation there as a med student. I was with my backpack. Somebody told me, go across the street and meet this doctor, Aldo Berti. And... I was going to my house and I said, you know what, maybe I'll meet him the day before I leave home. But something told me to make a little turn and go see him. And I was talking to him and he struck me as a very personable human being. It's not like your typical neurosurgeon. I'm a neurosurgeon. I know we're, we have the stereotypical Tough. jerk, you know. We are jerks to people sometimes. We don't want to be, but we come up like that. He was not. He was like a a very smart, successful scientist neurosurgeon, but he was like talking to like, uh, like a Picasso, you know? And he told me, you're gonna be a neurosurgeon? And I said this mumble like, yeah, you know, 
uh, I think I want to because I'm, it's so difficult, but I'm, you know, and I'm testing the waters and I really want to get some letters and see how I do. He just kind of shook his head and looked at me in the eye and said, okay, let me, let me ask you again. Are you going to be a neurosurgeon? Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I am. And since that moment, I never looked back. That was it. Since that, when I said yes, that was it for me. It was before and after. It was like a mental uh, switch that he flipped in yeah. your brain. Yeah, like, he just flipped a switch. And you I, wanna do it, you will, yeah. and convince yourself. Yeah, he never gave me money or got me a residency or got me a spot or called the program director to give me, no. He just did that to me. And that was, shit. I mean, that was, uh, you wanna cut that. But that was, uh, that was really like, I don't know. That was, to me, it's like curing something. It's like curing a mental disease. Yeah. When you have obstacles in your mind, they are bigger than the obstacles, like physical obstacles, you know? I used to be a competitive tennis player, and uh, I think that mental switch not only happens in personal performance academically, but also in sports. So I can relate to you on, on how you probably felt. Mm. Yeah. But so for our, our listeners, I think a clear message from this interview is there's nothing impossible and your mental attitude will define who you are. But there is one significant ingredient and component that is love and passion for your career. If you go into medicine hoping that you're gonna make a million dollars and it's gonna take you 14 years to make it there, it's not the path to go, right? Right, yeah, you got, medicine is, uh, it's almost being like a priest, you know, you got to do it for a love, you know, because you never know what's going to happen. You may never, quote unquote, make it, whatever that definition is for you. But for me, like today, for me, being able to do surgery, have somebody tell me I can see my kids again, I can walk home again, I can hug my relatives and Christmas again because of you, to me, it's like, it's super sexy, super cool. I mean, to me, it's like awesome. Meaningful. Yeah, it's awesome for me. That is better than the paycheck. Way much better than the paycheck. You go home, you feel like Superman. You feel amazing. It's like you. You save somebody in the ER. It gives you gratitude. It's good karma for you. And it makes you feel amazing. You know, it's, that's medicine. To me, that is medicine. You, you got to love to treat someone. And, and not only just, you know, checking a box and, you know, you know, CPT code and you just like, it's, this is not repetitive, you know, we're not technicians, right? Doing medicine is to treat someone and really dedicate that extra time for that patient. Because when you're a patient, you want your doctor to be the same way. It's like the shoes in your foot. If you're a patient, you want your doctor to, to be like, you know, I'm in a hurry, but let me just slow, slow down for a second. Tell me what your problem is. How can I help you? Even if I cannot help you, I'm going to try a little bit. So that's being a doctor. I mean, to me, you got to give yourself a little. Well, and, yeah. it's so good to see this side of you yeah, um, yeah. because obviously you're surgically proficient. Yeah. But um, it's, it's very nice to hear these words coming from a brain surgeon. And, it's, you know, I, I want to have brain surgery by you right now, <laughs> whatever it is, because I know I'm going to have a good outcome because I know you, you're passionate about it. Yeah. So let me get academic. Dr. Valdivia, let's get a little academic now. Uh, mm -hmm. 
to get to where we are, you have had a lot of education. Can you really tell us what was the path of postgraduate medical education in the U.S., where you went from Peru to Chicago, and then sure, sure. where else? Real quick, so I did my preliminary surgery internship in UIC in Chicago, uh, Metropolitan Global Hospitals. And then I matched into Neurosurgery University of Arizona, where I did my neurosurgery residency, and I was chief resident. I rotated at U of A hospital and one year um, uh, in Phoenix at Barrow Neurological Institute and also Phoenix Children's. Then when I graduated, I took a fellowship in complex and reconstructive spine surgery at University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I stayed as faculty and also as chief of neurosurgery at the VA hospital, which really was for me a, a great experience because I was able to handle general neurosurgery, but also dedicate my, my niche into complex and reconstructive spine with the best, you know, the, the best uh, spine surgeons uh, to me, my mentors, you know, my mentors are Frank Lamarca, it's like a brother to me, and, and Paul Park who taught me so much. And then uh, I took a sabbatical, if you want to say it like that, uh, six months to do a fellowship in neurosurgical oncology at Emory uh, University with Steve Olson and Dr. Nelson Oyeshiku. And it's a great experience for me. Then I went back to Michigan and uh, my mom's health was deteriorating a little bit. I felt some uh, somehow homesick. And I became, believe it or not, I became a free diver then. And I decided to, to move to Florida to be closer to home, number one. Wow. Number two, to take care of my mom better. And number three, to be close to the ocean. And I'm here. I miss academia. I miss academia. I used to teach the residents and take a lot of... Uh, pride and enjoyment out of teaching residents. I loved it. And I think they like me too. So um, I really miss academia because, because what, you, um, what you teach someone, it multiplies. You know, it multiplies and you, yeah, your teachings multiplies in, yeah, to what, the infinite. You know? What is about you that, okay, I'm a neurosurgeon. I'm going to go into neurosurgery. You're in the program. Then you become the chief of the neurosurgeons as a resident, that's a big deal, Dr. Valdivia. The and, chief, yeah. and then you become, you have several awards for teacher of the year that I see all over your, your diploma wall. Mm -hmm. That motivation keeps coming from the passion, or what would you say that it ignites the fire every day to wake up and keep doing it over and over and over again? I can only tell you what I know. Uh, neurosurgery, I don't want to speak for all neurosurgeons, but I think uh, we are all fueled by Number one, your surgery is a highly demanding field. Mm -hmm. Every patient is different. Every case is different. It's difficult. So that makes it challenging. And for neurosurgeons, that makes it exciting. I mean, it's exciting to be in the OR trying to save someone's life, trying to take a difficult tumor, tumor try to fix a difficult spine. You know, it's not just like a cookie cutter. It's never a cookie cutter, I think, unless you're doing a... A boring procedure, but in neurosurgery, it's, it's adaptation. You got to adapt to the clinical scenario. You got to think. You got to plan, and you got to think in three planes. You know, you have a have a three D image of the brain, so to speak, or the skull base or the spine. So, to me, that's just that. It's just a fun field. You know, it's tough, but it's fun. And you know, hell, man, if you, I mean, if you're gonna do something, you do it good and. You only have one life, you know. Don't you laugh when people, probably you're in social situations in which they don't know that you're a brain surgeon and people say, well, that this is not like brain surgery, you know, like yeah. that means 
a big deal. You're like a big show. I say, yeah, I'm one of those. Yeah. <laughs> I laugh. Uh, people think we're really smart, but to tell you the truth, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I, we're not, I don't think our IQ is like a lot higher than other specialties. We're just very stubborn, I think, in neurosurgery, and we're very resilient to painful stuff like lack of sleep, lack of food, you know, yeah. And verbal abuse. Maybe, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. For, through neurosurgery training, you go, depending on where you train, you go through a lot of stuff. And in neurosurgery, I think not only you have to be smart, I don't think you're smarter. I don't think it makes you a better person per se, but we are really resistant to pain. We're really resilient, stubborn, and that's persistency takes you through that training. You know? I have picked up several cues throughout this interview today, and I think they're fantastic motivational um, tips. I want to probably try to wrap up our conversation by asking you in summary, if I was this uh, young Latin American medical student that, or any doctor in Africa, India, China, Canada, Europe, that wants to come into America mm -hmm. and come into a highly competitive specialty like neurosurgeon, what would be a couple words of advice right now, looking back mm -hmm. 18 years, that they should do to be able to accomplish their goals? Well, I think one has to do some introspection. Really, really be honest to yourself and tell you why this is the world, why you want to do that. Because I wanted to be a neurosurgeon no matter what. If neurosurgery, the best training was in China, I'll be in China right now. If it was in Australia, I'll be in Australia right now. Because I wanted to go where I could get trained the best. And at the time, what was advertised to me is that the best training was in the U.S. So I came with that mentality. That's number one. You got to know why you want to do it. Number two, you got to love it. You got It has to be your drug, quote-unquote. And neurosurgery, it's a big, quote-unquote, drug because it keeps you excited. It keeps you, like, wanting to do it, wanting to be there, wanting to treat patients. You want to know, number one, why you want to do it. Number two, you have to know you love it. If you don't love it, forget it. Don't do it. It's too much. I mean, start you know, with a why. You have to start with a why, not a how I'm going to do it or not how much money or how it compares to others. No, no. You have to start with knowing why you're going to do it and knowing that you love it and you really love it. And you're going to be happy with it. Then number three, I think you have to know if you deserve it as a, as a professional. How is that? Everybody deserves to be happy and, and achieve their goals, right? But it's as a professional, if you're proficient enough to do it. Like if I couldn't, let's say, if I didn't have 20-20 uh, vision or I have very poor vision or I had a tremor or I have some memory problems or, or I was lazy, I don't know. Some, maybe I wouldn't be a good neurosurgeon, you know. If I was, if you deserve it, you know, if you really, if you really have what it takes, you need to know if you deserve it professionally in the professional arena to be a either neurosurgery or anything difficult like that and, and competitive. And number four, um, just believe in yourself. Because you're going to have, I think a lot of people are going to have people, other people who tell, say no to you. And that's why I learned from all this that you should never say no to nobody. You never know. Never know when the kid that you see outside on the street uh, 
you know, cleaning cars is going to do in 20 years. You never know. And back in Peru, I mean, nobody gave a dime for my chances of being a neurosurgeon in the U.S. None. None. Not even a letter of reference. Nothing. And that's why I owe this guy in Miami. I owe him this Dr. change. Dr. Aldo Berti. Yeah, yeah. He's... Uh, yeah, if I had surgery, he's doing my surgery. <laughs> so he's your mentor. Yeah, and he told me too what he reminded me a couple times not to forget what we as South Americans have in medicine. So for my patients, I call my patients, I hug my patients, I kiss my patients, and hell, if they're sad, I hug them, I give them a tissue paper because they need that. You know, you can cure just by entering the room, right? If you go to the doctor. In South America, they want the patients want you to be nice to them. Yeah, you know, so you know, it's, you got, yeah, and, and South American doctors were a little different. Let's yes. let's be honest. Yeah, you know, so you you see your patient, you want to be happy, you're animated, you know, you're mm -hmm. there, you're, you're happy, you hug them, they like it. You know, people like that. That guy uh, in Miami, um, uh, Aldo, is uh, just a larger he, than life. Yeah, personality. he he's, he's he's too much. Yeah, he's he's um, he's amazing. So. In summary, I would recommend anyone right now that wants to do a difficult medical subspecialty in medicine, just know that you are entering a field where it's not just like doing anything else. In medicine, you, you are trying to prove yourself that you're going to be good to others. That's number one. You're making an oath to the creator, whoever you want to call the creator, right? You want to call the creator anything, you're making a note saying, Please allow me the chance to be good to others. Wow. Right? That's it. Even if you just have to sign prescriptions, you have to be good to others. So when I call it karma, yoga, whatever you want, you have to be good to others. And you have to know you can be good to others. And then the rest is just kind of falls by itself. But if you don't have that down, you're not going to be a good doctor, man. Wow. No, that's the number one. I, I know you agree with that. Right? I agree with you. So, Dr. Valdivia. After almost 50 minutes of being here face to face, I can tell you it's probably one of the more goosebumps creating interviews that I have done so far. And hearing this from you really even and gets me motivated to go and work tomorrow and do what I do as an emergency physician. Cool. I want to personally thank you for investing an hour of your time with me. I know you're a very busy, it's a busy, pleasure. busy guy. It's a pleasure. But we just want to get a message, you know, and this message cannot come across better than what you have done so far. I think is uh, I saw tears in your eyes, mm -hmm. maybe coming down, mm, and yeah. I can see through you. Yeah. I can see that you're a great person deep down. And, you know, I know you work hard and sometimes uh, I call you at the worst time of night with the worst complicated okay. scenarios, but I always appreciate your professionalism and your responsiveness. Thank you. So, guys, please um, follow me at the webpage www.fmg-imgcast.com has been completely revamped and updated. It's uh, being posted by the end of this week. Nice. And also, any comments, especially a five-star comments, is going to be remarkably useful to move our podcast up into the rankings of iTunes podcast application. I want to put myself up there, and my only motivation is to get a message to all of you that want to make it in America. Dr. Valdivia, again, thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for being here and opening your doors. Thank you very much. I wish everybody the best, and just remember, you know, believe in yourself. 
you know, you're gonna have obstacles, but uh, the biggest obstacles are the mental ones. Guys, hit me up, send me an email, and if you have any questions and any things that I can do in the near future, let me know. Let's keep this uh, message strong. Thank you.